Gosh, I love that music. Isn't it just great? I wish I could give credit to the Irish band that is playing that. Uh, but it was off a free website that was for bumper music for podcasts. Uh, but what could make you want to study Romans more than that? <laughs> anyway, welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and we untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. We're on episode, season one, episode 13. Your religion is killing you. Romans 2, 17 to 29. Hey, religion can be a beautiful thing if it's handled correctly. However, it is often led to smugness, superiority, and exclusion. Is your religion killing you? Hey, good good to see you all again, or hear you, or at least have you be on the other end of listening. Uh, this is Pastor Steve Treichler, Hope Community Church. Really have been enjoying uh, being with you on these podcasts. Thanks so much for all the encouragement, too. I've gotten a lot of encouragement and no discouragement. So I guess it's kind of one of those deals. If you have nothing to say, don't say anything at all. And so we appreciate that <laughs> very much. So, But no, it's been very much fun. And I'm looking forward to finishing up this season. We have this episode, then two more regular episodes. Then we'll do a bonus episode as well, as we'll be looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and it's just going to be kind of me walking through and just making observations and just having some fun with it. Uh, and then that we'll take the summer off then, and then we'll kick her back off in the fall as we begin looking at Romans chapter 3 in the middle, uh, starting in verse 19, in, in what Martin Luther called the most important passage in all the Bible, where we look at what Jesus Christ actually accomplished on the cross and so we're very excited to begin that with you all this fall. We've been taking some time in this first season of Romans Untangled to just give you some Bible study tools. And maybe for some of you, this is all just review, uh, but we really want to aim this series at those who are brand new to the Bible. And man, we are we are dealing with one of the most difficult books of the Bible. And so if that's you, I just want to encourage you, man, I just I look at the things we've already talked about in our Bible study tool teaching and man, if you've already started to apply some of these things, you are getting a good grasp of how to go after scripture. This week, I want to look at the idea of literary genres or, or biblical genres. And what I mean by the word genre, it's a fancy word, but it basically means type. In other words, there are different types of literature, and you read them differently than you would read other types, right? You obviously would read a, a fictional account of some something way different than you'd read a non-fictional account, or you'd read poetry different than you would read, say, an obituary, or different types of literature. And there are, there people kind of debate on this, I would say there's primarily seven different types in Scripture. And so I'm going to list them and we'll talk about them. There's poetry, narrative, wisdom, or what some would say is like Proverbs, that type of literature, prophetic, prophecy, gospels, apocalypse, and epistles. Okay, so let's kind of go back through them. There, there's poetry, which just means basically a lot of the Psalms are written this way. It's done in, in kind of a beautiful language, but poetry, of course, is using the literature to kind of grab an emotional, emotional picture for you to understand things. The mountains will fall into the sea, right? And so it doesn't literally mean the mountains will fall into the sea, but literally, using the word correctly, it actually does mean. It means this amazing event is about to happen, right? 
narrative. They're, they're explaining something. But remember, whenever we read narrative of Scripture, which is a lot, it just means an account telling about much of the Gospels ultimately are narratives, even though they're written in a little bit different style, and so people give them their own genre. But, but narrative is not just telling a story for a story's sake. You always have to ask, what's the point, and why are these details included? Always ask that. Wisdom. Wisdom is like Proverbs, right? Uh, Maybe a few other books of the Bible, but Proverbs is probably the easiest to look at. This is the idea of giving a statement that is generally true, but not a promise. For instance, the proverb that says, train the child in the way they should go, and in the end, it will go well with them, right? So, But that's not a promise. That's just saying a general thing about raising children is if you train them, it will go better for them. But but that's not meaning that if you train them, that it's guaranteed that it will happen. It's a certain type of genre, meaning it gives certain wisdom literature. Prophetic language. Prophetic language is primarily in the Old Testament, and it's basically where God is looking at people and saying, if this happens, then this will happen. So if you continue in your sinful ways, then these things will happen. And it kind of goes through that um, that idea. Then we have Gospels. Now, the Gospels are really narrative, but there are a certain type of narrative that is a little bit different. And of course, this particular podcast is about Romans, so it's not a Gospel. But when we're reading the Gospel accounts, and I obviously love the Gospels, we have to ask ourselves, what? why did the author, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, why did they include these certain things about Jesus? Why did they put them in this order? What's the theme? Why, how does this certain account follow the next account? And the fancy word for each account is just pericope. It's just a fancy way of saying story, but when you use the word story, it sounds fictitious, and so they use a word pericope. Don't get freaked out by it. It just, it just basically means, why does this pericope follow this one? What's the link between them, and how's the story progressing? We get then to apocalypse, which for some people is their least favorite type of literature, <laughs> and some do it, it's like their, their favorite, and it's like the book of Revelation, right? It's this, it's this language that's out there, and there's there's beasts, and there's animals, and there's horns, and there's uh, seven spirits, and there's, it's all this kind of almost Lord of the Rings kind of speaking. And it was a language that they were familiar with in their particular culture and time. And so they were used to this kind of speaking. It's something we're not used to. When we read through the book of Revelation, dude, it, it sounds like it, you know, not to be crass, but 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 it sounds a little bit like a stoner's writing, you know. Oh, oh man, I looked up and dude, whoa, whoa, really? Like there was these seven stars, and it was like on each one of them, dude. That's kind of the way we read it. <laughs> That's not the way they were reading it. Okay, they were familiar with this kind of language. It was very representative of the things, and it was really trying to draw an emotional picture with you. One last type of genre, and that's the genre of epistles or letters is what that means. And that's what we're reading here. Now, when you get to a letter, the interesting thing on it is, is there's particular parts of the letter. Obviously, we talked about greetings and closings and some of that, but there's there's elements of it that are personal. So in other words, they're, they're really not to us at all. There's a, there's a passage in one of the letters to Timothy where it says, uh, bring my bring my cloaks and bring my writings to me, right? Well, that has no application to us whatsoever. And there's, it's, it's very much about that particular relationship. But there's also things that are talking about that particular location and they're specific 
to what's happening at that location. Uh, Paul, even here in this letter to Romans, talks about that's why I'm eager to come to see you in Rome and some of these things. That doesn't have a whole lot of application to us. But what does have an application is what we look as more of a universal. There's a teaching. There's something that they're doing. And it might be in the context of this personal or locational issues that are happening, but there's this big universal teaching, doctrinal issues that we're learning about. And boy, that's that's where the book of Romans is just, it's just meaty. It's just filled with this universal doctrine. So as you're reading scripture, you got to realize there's different genres. You have to kind of treat them differently. We handle the Bible literally, but that means we do it with understanding the different genres. Okay, great. Uh, Let's dive into the book of Romans. You remember last time, if you were with us, we looked at, we were in chapter two and uh, we had just finished going through chapter one and it had talked about this the the wrath of God being revealed against all the sinfulness and wickedness of people, but it primarily was leaning into those who were who were Gentile or who did not have the Old Testament, those who were were didn't have any understanding of direct contact with God via his word. And then we get into Romans two and it starts lighting up and saying things like, Hey, you who judge others. Hey, maybe you should consider that first about you. And it ended a couple of weeks back with Romans 2, 11, which says, for God does not show favoritism. And, and again, to us, as we read that, if you're a non-Jewish person, you just go, okay, yeah, of course he doesn't. But to a Jewish person, you'd go, wait a minute. Yeah, he does. Uh, the Jews are God's special possession, and then everybody else isn't. Jews are the special race. They're the, the chosen people. And what he's now going to do by the time we get done with this season, which again has two more episodes after this one, we'll see that he's actually going to say that being a Jew has an advantage, but not what you think it does. So for God does not show favoritism leads us into what we talked about last week, that the Jews and the Gentiles both had law. The Jews had the law that was written. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, got the law, and he came back down and he imposed it on the people. The Gentiles have a law, but it's a different kind of law. We looked at this, you remember, I think it was a week ago, where we went and looked at the the land covenant that um, that God had with the nations that was similar to the land covenant that he had with the Jewish people, that if if the sins of the nation got to a certain point, he was going to cease letting them be a nation. And that was actually a deal with all the nations, but one was written and clear and spoken. One was just written on the people's hearts. It was in their consciences. And so that's what he's getting at in Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. So now if you have your Bible open or your phone or whatever, hope you're not driving, don't do that. Just listen. I'll read it. We're going to look at this week's passage, which is going to finish up chapter 2. So here we go. It's Romans 2, 17 through 29. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you are, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Okay, this is a this is a tough passage. This is one of those passages that if you're brand new to the Bible again, it's going to be a little bit, there's a lot of tangleness that we need to untangle. So let's just kind of walk back through it. If you have a chance to look at it, look at it with me. And he gives a series of if statements here. If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you know as well, if you approve what is superior because you're instructed by law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, and on and on and on, right? He's giving this thing, he's getting himself, he's clearly making it known that he's talking about Jewish people, right? And he says, if you think you're the Jew and you think you're superior to others, and you think because of your pedigree, your religious pedigree that you're better, let's actually look at yourself. Do, do you do some of these things? Do you do? You do and, and he's reminding them of the history of Israel as he quotes in verse 24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting from Isaiah 52. And he's quoting from Israel's history saying, listen, you people think you're my special possession? Man, you people have done nothing but just break my law. I just, I see giving you more laws, end up giving 613 of them. You find new ways to break them. So he's actually getting after the Jewish people here by saying, if you think that you're okay because you're of the nation or because you're of the culture or because you're of the religion of Judaism, you're in big trouble here. And then he goes on to get on circumcision. We'll talk about this. This becomes the major issue in the New Testament. The people who who kept the Old Testament, the Jews, looked at circumcision as the mark of the covenant. Right? And not without not without reason. Well, I'll go into why in just a minute. Paul actually says here it's value if you actually follow it. But if you don't, then it doesn't make any difference. In fact, people who are uncircumcised, they could live betterly. And he, he sums it up in verses 28 and 29 by saying a person is not a real Jew. A person is not really a person of God the people of God, if you're only one outwardly, religiously, culturally, birthright. And he says, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. It's not an outward thing. No, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly. There's something going on on the inside. Okay, so this then becomes the issue in the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts, everything's going along hunky-dory. And all of a sudden, we get to Acts chapter 15, and this huge debate happens. Acts chapter 15 says this, 
Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. So Antioch is the major, it's north of Jerusalem. It's where the major church planting efforts were taking place. All the spreading of the gospel, all the evangelism was happening that way. And now these people come in and they and they say down, even though it would be up on a map, but it means down because Jerusalem's kind of on a hill. Come from Jerusalem, they come there and they teach the believers this. Unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then it goes on to say, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I mean, they were ready to go all UFC on one another. This is big. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go back up to Jerusalem. Again, on a map, it would be down, it'd be south, but to see the apostles and the elders about this question, Right? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles, those who had not been circumcised, those who were not Jewish, the nations, had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees. So this is a religious group that is still holding on to their Judaism strongly, pharisaical, Pharisees. They stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, I'm not going to read any more from Acts chapter 15. You can read it yourself. But it, it goes on to describe this, this debate that they have. Do the Gentiles need to become Jews? Do they first need to become Jews through circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, through the keeping of the law, especially some of the, the, the food laws, the cultural laws, and it just, do they ethnically need to become Jewish? And it's a big question for them. And it's throughout the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul, who he himself would say, I'm the Jew of Jews, am saying, that's the wrong understanding of the storyline. We started that conversation in our last episode. Believe me, we're going to keep going on with that throughout the book of Romans. There's a wrong reading of the Old Testament that leads you to think that you need to become Jewish. Now, where do they get this from? Well, they get it from the Bible. In, in, in the story of, of Abraham in Genesis 17, so remember the call first comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, come, follow me. But in Genesis chapter 17, there's this thing that's going to be instituted, which is a sign of the covenant that was made with with Abraham uh, to, uh, excuse me, from God to Abraham. And so it says this, it says, then God said to Abraham, this is verse nine of chapter 17 of Genesis, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Even those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought for money, uh, bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay. So at first glance, you'd read that and go, dude, that's a strong case, right? I mean, we should be doing this still, right? 
That's the way it was until Christ came and revealed the storyline. Once the whole storyline has been revealed, then it is not only no longer necessary, but it can actually be a stumbling block to go ahead and get yourself circumcised to think that that makes you right with God, even as an infant. Infant gets circumcised, I'm in the right family, I'm in the right culture, I'm in the right ethnic group, I'm in the right religion, I'm okay. And the storyline continues as we go on, where this, this man, the Apostle Paul, who would have hold wholeheartedly to that, was later the one who writes the book of Galatians, who says to the people who are uncircumcised, the the and again, circumcision back then was not a thing like it is today for non-Jewish people that you just some people do it and it's for health reasons or for looks or whatever. That was not the point. The point here was a mark to show that you were part of this covenant and it, and it really was a thing that you held on to as honor. Apostle Paul is going to later say, if you let yourself be circumcised, if you put your faith and hope that you think you're joining the right team by this outward thing, you're rejecting Christ. Christ has no part with you. So what for for a lot of us who don't didn't grow up this way, perhaps you didn't grow up Jewish, and I didn't. Uh, we have a few people in our in our fellowship who have over the years. I've had a lot of great conversations with them about this. But what does this reek of? What, what what does this speak to us? I mean, what, how do I apply this? Right? It speaks of religion. Now, let me be careful in how I define religion because I often get emails on this. Um, when I when I'm not careful, and what I mean by religion here is, uh, and I'm going to lean into it uh, something that Tim Keller wrote uh, a sermon that he delivered, and I think it was 2008 when he gave this sermon. The sermon is based off of a passage of scripture that I recently preached from. That's how I stumbled upon his sermon, and it's from Hebrews chapter eight. Okay, and it's it's going after this in Hebrews chapter eight. Uh, verse 1 says, Now the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a a mere human being. And so what we're getting at here is in the book of Hebrews, and again, Hebrews is a complicated book, but we're going through it as a church right now. Um, and he's basically saying what Jesus did after he after he went to the cross and rose again and ascended is he sat down. Why? Because he's done. In other words, there's no more striving. There's no more work to be done. As my friend Larry Osborne says, if you believe the gospel, there's nothing to prove and there's no one to impress because it has been done at the cross. It's done. In other words, and Tim Keller picks up on that and says, Because of this passage, that means religion has died. And he defines religion this way. He says in all, I'm going to summarize his sermon. Um, And if you do want to get the link for where this sermon is, I can can do that for you. Uh, Just send me an email at steve at hopecc.com and I'm happy to give you the link. Or you can go back to the sermon that I preached. Um, I don't have the date, but it was on Hebrews chapter 8 at hopecc.com. You can click on Hope Resources and see the, the links there for our sermons. He says basically this, I'm going to summarize it. He says, every religion, all religions 
have, have two basic components. The first is that they believe that there's a reality of nature, that there's something behind that that is an ultimate reality. We live in a reality, but there's an ultimate reality. We live in a small r reality. There's a capital R reality. The second thing that all religions agree on is that there's a gap between our reality and the real reality, an ultimate reality, and somehow we need to bridge that, okay? So every other religion has has a founder, and that founder has said, I'm pointing you to that ultimate reality, right? The difference, he says, and I'm going to quote Keller here, is he says, Jesus says, I am the ultimate reality to which all the teachers and prophets and preachers and sages point. Nobody has ever said that. I am the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. And not only that, but he's also the bridge over the gap. His life and death, resurrection are the bridge over the gap between us and where we can get to with God. So that leads us then to looking at every other religion and they say, you do this, you give this, you offer this, you, you, you live a certain way, you, you experience that, you do whatever, that'll send you over the gap. But the difference is, is Jesus says, I am the God who's on the other side of the gap and at infinite cost to myself, I've actually come on the other side of the gap over barriers to you in order to bring you back. So that's why Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a faith because it trusts in Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ and him alone. So how do you know? Like, how does this passage in? You know, you look at all this stuff and like, what? how do you know whether or not you're religious or following Jesus? And again, I'm, since, I'm, and since I started here, I'm going to go through one of my very favorite Keller things. In his book, Gospel in Life, he lists ways that you can know if you're following religion or the gospel. Let me just read them through as we close today. He says, religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says this, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion The motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Motivation for the gospel is based on grateful joy. In religion, I obey in order to get things from God. In the gospel, I obey to get God, to delight in and resemble Him. Religion says this, when I am am criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel says this, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says this, my prayer life consists largely of petition, and it and only heats up when I'm in time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. But the gospel says this, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. 
Religion says this, my self-view swings between poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel humble and not confident. I feel like a failure. But the gospel says this, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am, and he's got a Latin phrase here, simul istus et peccator, which just means simultaneously sinful and lost, and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. Friends, are you religious? Paul is in his argument here in the book of Romans. He's focusing on those who are relying on their religious status by birth or by tradition. He's making it clear to them, and he's going to continue it on, that they themselves are not okay by their religious status. He does this by quoting from their storyline in the Old Testament. My name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the nations, because of you. Being a Jew will not save you. Being born into a Christian family, or being a member of the right church, or, 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 or holding on to certain religious aspects will not save you. Christ, Jesus Christ, and him alone is what saves. If you're relying on your religious pedigree, tradition, background, I invite you to repent of that today and to stop being your own Lord and Savior and allow the risen Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Hey, have a great week. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled where we discuss the issue that seems to be coming up here where or Paul even brings it up. He says, wait a minute. What advantage is there being a Jew at all? Thanks for listening.